Okay, welcome back to Understanding Childhood Cancer with Dr. Jeff. I guess that means I'm Dr. Jeff, and uh, I'm sorry you're listening to this podcast. I wish we didn't have to have podcasts on childhood cancer, because it just doesn't seem right, but unfortunately, it seems like we do. Anyway, this is number four in my series on bone tumours that occur in uh, children and teenagers and young adults. And today it's particularly about the treatment of osteosarcoma, also called osteogenic sarcoma. Now you really need to have listened to the first and second episodes of this series on bone tumours. The first episode talked about the different sorts of bone tumours that occur in children and young adults. And the second one talked about the sort of tests that are done to work out if a tumour is present and to look at the extent of the tumour and what type of tumour and all sorts of things. And I'm going to proceed now on the assumption that you've listened to those first and second episodes. So if you haven't listened to them, this might not make much sense to you. It would also be a good idea for you to listen to my very first introduction to this podcast and the episode on chemotherapy, an introduction to chemotherapy, because again, I'm going to assume you've listened to that and so you'll understand what I'm on about. Anyway, uh, by the time we finished the second episode of the bone tumour series, uh, we were at a situation where the patient's been found to have an osteogenic sarcoma, a tumour of a bone, and we know by now what bone it's in, and the patient will have had some scans. They will have had often an MRI scan to look at the site of that primary tumour to see where it sits in relation to the bone, exactly how far it extends within the bone and around the bone, etc. And the patient will have had some other scans to see whether the tumour is spread to somewhere more distant from that primary site. So has it spread to form nodules in the lungs? Has it spread to other bones in the body? And often that will have been done with a CT scan of the chest and lungs and often with a PET scan or a bone scan or maybe both. In addition, the patient will have undergone some tests to check that they've got a normal heart and they've got normal kidneys and they've got normal hearing, all for reasons that I explained before but you'll come to understand now. So by now we know that the patient has an osteosarcoma We know where it is, and we know if it's spread elsewhere in the body. And very importantly, the surgeon will have had a look at the situation to decide whether this looks like a tumour that will be able to be removed surgically at some point. That is, is the tumour operable? The majority of osteosarcomas occur above and below the knee joint, or at the top of the humerus bone, so up near the shoulder at the top of the arm bone. That accounts for the great majority of osteosarcomas, and very often in those locations the tumour is suitable for surgical removal at some point. Now there are other sites in the body that an osteosarcoma can occur in, basically any bone in the body it's possible, but they are less common, and it's quite complicated to go through and work out well which ones are going to be operable and which ones aren't. So I don't intend to do that now, but it is of vital importance to know if the tumour will be able to be removed surgically because radiotherapy isn't usually useful to cure an osteosarcoma. 
So you really need a combination of chemotherapy drugs and an operation as the usual way to be able to cure an osteosarcoma. So that's different to Ewing sarcoma that I talked about in episode three of the bone tumor series. In Ewing sarcoma, radiotherapy can often be very effective. And so if a tumor can't be removed by the surgeon, then you've often got another option, which is radiotherapy to treat the tumor. So that's the difference. Radiotherapy, not as effective in osteogenic sarcoma. The basic plan of treatment for osteosarcoma is to give chemotherapy for a period of some weeks usually, then to have an operation performed to remove the primary tumour and then to go on with further chemotherapy. So that's the basic plan. Now why do we start with chemotherapy, you're probably wondering. Why don't we just cut this tumour out and be done with it? I wish it was that easy. Well, there's a number of reasons why we start with chemotherapy. First of all, a minority of patients have disease, so cancer, that has spread from that bone where it started from and has spread to elsewhere in the body to the point where we can detect it in the lungs on the CT scan or in the PET scan and we can see that the tumour has spread. So that's called metastasis, metastatic cancer. And that makes it much more serious with osteosarcoma than if it was just a localised tumour. In that situation, the only thing that's going to treat the whole body, every place where the tumour has found itself, is to give drugs. So chemotherapy drugs are what we have to start with. Now, in those patients where we can see the tumour in the bone, but we can't see any spread to anywhere else in the body, we actually work on the assumption that there might be microscopic amounts of tumour that have spread elsewhere in the body. So tiny little microscopic amounts of tumour that have spread elsewhere in the body, too small for us to detect with our scans, but present nonetheless somewhere else in the body. And there's a good reason to believe that this is the case. If, for instance, you performed an immediate amputation of the leg in someone whose scans were clear elsewhere in the body, well, it would only be a matter of time for a number of those patients where cancer would actually turn up elsewhere in the body. So even though we think that the scans are clear and we can't see any evidence of spread, we work on the assumption that there might be tiny little amounts of cancer that have spread elsewhere in the body, and so we need to give our chemotherapy drugs first to treat the primary tumour, but also to try to kill those tiny deposits of cancer wherever they might be in the body. Another reason for giving chemotherapy before surgery is that it often makes the surgery easier. It changes the tumour by killing part of the tumour. The tumour may shrink, may not shrink even though it dies. It makes it easier for the surgeon to remove the tumour. Another reason is that often the surgeon will be needing to replace the piece of bone that he removes with some sort of artificial component, maybe a piece of metal, maybe a piece of bone from elsewhere in the body, maybe a piece of bone from the bone bank. There's all sorts of ways that surgeons reconstruct a bone after they remove the tumour. Most of the time, surgeons are trying to find a way to remove an osteosarcoma without performing an amputation. Most of the time, if it's a tumour in the limb, the arm or the leg, 
they're looking for a way to remove the tumour but without performing an amputation. And often they need to order in custom-made bits of metal, well, you know, like a knee replacement that an old person has for an arthritis. That sort of componentry has to be measured up to fit and ordered in well ahead of time and be ready to go at the time of surgery. And the fourth reason why it's good to give chemotherapy first is when the tumour is removed, the surgeon removes the affected bone and sends the bone to the pathologists. The pathologists will cut the tumour up and look at it under the microscope and they will be able to estimate how effective the chemotherapy had been in killing the cancer. And in particular, they use something called the HUVOS system, the HUVOS grade, that's H-U-V-O-S grade, is a measure of the percent cell kill that's been obtained. And the grading system, I think it goes 1 to 4 or something, but in the most recent studies of Europe and the United States and Australia and Canada, the, the key distinction was between patients whose tumours were 90% or more killed and those where the kill was less than 90%. So better than 90% was called a good responder, and less than 90% was called a poor responder. It's very important to us working out the chances of curing an individual patient with osteosarcoma to see what level of cell kill was obtained with this pre-operative chemotherapy. So there are all the reasons why we start with chemotherapy and plan for surgery to be performed some weeks later. Now I should mention, by the way, there are occasional patients with osteosarcoma who have a particular subtype of osteosarcoma that doesn't need chemotherapy. So the great majority of osteosarcomas do need chemotherapy treatment, but there is a small group of patients with a particular appearance under the microscope that doesn't need chemotherapy, the parosteal osteosarcoma it's called. And oftentimes surgery can be adequate treatment for those. But they're only a small group. So the plan then is to give chemotherapy. Uh, a patient needs to have a central line put in usually. Most of the time we put in some sort of a central line and I'll do a podcast on central lines but it's hard work to just rely on putting a drip in the vein every time you give chemotherapy. And so most of the time we put in a central line these days. Now, a typical program of chemotherapy would be what we used in that last study that I mentioned. So uh, the last study in osteosarcoma went under the heading of Euramos, E-U-R-A-M-O-S. I don't know for sure, but I think that means European American osteosarcoma. That's probably how they got uromos. I think so. Anyway, in that study, the standard treatment that was agreed upon was to give chemotherapy for 10 weeks, then plan to have an operation performed, and then to give more chemotherapy. And the more chemotherapy in the standard protocol went for a further 17 weeks. So if you allowed about two weeks for the surgery, it all came to about a 29-30 week package of treatment and that was what was considered the standard. Now in that study, they were trying out some other treatments in certain situations and so some patients' treatment went for longer than that. But the standard treatment was 10 weeks of chemo, operation, then about 17 weeks more of chemotherapy. 
but not radiotherapy, like I said before. Now, this isn't the only chemotherapy program to treat osteosarcoma. There are other combinations and other drugs and so on that are used, but I'll just talk about it because it's pretty common in in uh, Europe, North America, Australia. So the chemotherapy that's used throughout this program was based on giving three chemotherapy drugs. The first drug was called cisplatin. The second is called doxorubicin, also used to be called adriamycin. And the third drug is called high-dose methotrexate. So just a, a word on these three drugs. So the first one was cisplatin, cisplatinum. It's got a platinum atom somewhere inside the drug. That's why it's got that name. And this is a drug that's given into the central line. It's quite complicated to give. You normally need to give fluids into the central line for a few hours or overnight, depending on your unit, and then give the drug over several hours, and then usually follow it with several hours or overnight or 24 hours, depending on your institution's protocols, of high-rate fluid drip with extra magnesium in it and mannitol and all sorts of things. It's all to protect the kidneys a bit from cisplatinum because cisplatinum can be damaging to the kidneys. So there's usually a complicated program of fluids that goes with cisplatinum. Cisplatinum is the one that can affect hearing and the kidneys and so that's why we do an audiogram and uh, kidney tests before starting on treatment and as we make our way through multiple cycles of giving this drug then we often repeat the audiogram after a while and repeat the kidney tests just to make sure that they're handling the treatment pretty well. Cisplatinum is also pretty bad as far as causing nausea and vomiting and sometimes that can even last a week or more and some children have a really terrible time of it, some don't. We're usually giving all sorts of drugs to stop vomiting. There's all these fancy drugs that can be given to reduce the severity of nausea and vomiting, but it can be a real problem. The other drug that's normally given at the same time as the cisplatinum is doxorubicin, or adriamycin it used to be called, but nowadays it's doxorubicin. And this one's given into the central line as well, and sometimes over 15 minutes or an hour or six hours, 24 hours, depends on what protocols you're using. It's a red-coloured drug, and it causes low blood counts, it can cause mouth ulcers, and it's one of the drugs that makes hair fall out. So that's pretty common in osteosarcoma treatment. Doxorubicin has a particular side effect that it can affect the heart. So it can affect the muscle of the heart, and particularly at higher cumulative doses of doxorubicin. And so the protocol specifies that you give a certain number of doses and then you don't go beyond that that cumulative dose routinely. We think that that's a, a level that the heart can handle. Nonetheless, we check the heart at the start with an echocardiogram. It's like an ultrasound of the heart to check that the heart's normal. And usually as we make our way through treatment and giving multiple rounds of these drugs, we check the heart function from time to time. We think that we know what's a safe-ish amount of doxorubicin to give, but we're still learning about it. It might be that 10, 20, 30, 40 years later, we find that the so-called safe doses of this drug weren't as safe as we thought. So it's an area of a lot of research, and there's a lot of research going on to try to work out whether you can give this amount to everyone or whether some people are going to be more sensitive than others. And You know, it's all very complicated. 
But anyway, in that Euromos protocol, we normally gave the cisplatin and the doxorubicin together, and then the blood counts would drop. So listen to the earlier podcast about blood counts and things, but the blood counts would drop, and then they'd recover. And then once they recovered, then we gave the third drug, and, the, and that was normally about three weeks later. The third drug is called methotrexate, and in particular it's called high-dose methotrexate. High-dose methotrexate is yellow in colour, and when you give high-dose methotrexate, this sounds pretty scary, but what you do is you give the patient a whole lot of fluid intravenously to get them well hydrated, and then you give the methotrexate in a big high dose that's dripped in over four hours, and then you continue with plenty of fluid. And that dose of methotrexate, well, you wouldn't normally recover from that dose. Uh, It's probably enough to kill three or four of us. But what you do is, at hour 24, you give something called folinic acid. Folinic acid is the antidote to methotrexate. So it's high-dose methotrexate with folinic acid rescue. Folinic acid has another name. It's sometimes called leucovorin. Leucovorin. So the folinic acid starts at hour 24, usually, and continues for a few days. And that's rescuing the patient from the high-dose methotrexate. So the idea is that you hit the tumour with this solid blast that that lasts 24 hours, and then you give the rescue to rescue the patient. And then in the days afterwards, you usually measure the methotrexate level in the bloodstream and the kidney function. And that gives you a sense of how well the patient is clearing the methotrexate from their body and how much of that antidote folinic acid rescue is needed and how long it needs to go on and how long the patient might need to stay in hospital and so on. So the giving of high-dose methotrexate, in a lot of ways it's complicated and it's technical and you're stuck in hospital giving it. A lot of the time patients don't find it as bad as the cisplatinum and doxorubicin as far as Uh, nausea and vomiting and low blood counts and all of that. The occasional patient, though, has a bad reaction to high-dose methotrexate and it can affect the kidneys quite severely. And this is one of the things we're all looking out for as we give high-dose methotrexate. We're normally checking the kidney blood tests each day and looking for any sign of a a kidney problem developing because it can become quite complicated. Anyway, so that's the first five weeks of treatment. We give the cisplatinum and doxorubicin. Three weeks later at week four, we give a high-dose methotrexate. At week five, we give it all over again. And then at week six, we start back at week one again and repeat the whole lot. So we end up giving 10 weeks of these three drugs and then hope to be going to surgery. Towards the end of that 10 weeks, we'd normally do all of our scans again. Now we want to see what have we achieved with the chemotherapy. And so we'd normally do an MRI scan of the primary site again. We'd normally do something like a PET scan, for instance, to look at whether the tumour has gone cold, if it's become less active with the chemotherapy. Now, I say we do a PET scan. A lot of units don't have PET scanners, so it's a bit sort of of state-of-the-art. Not everyone has a PET scanner, but they're getting more and more common. But we'd certainly do an MRI, and we might do a bone scan, and we may, might do a CT scan of the chest. And so if there were nodules in the lungs before, we want to see if they've gotten any smaller, for instance. And that'll tell us, well, is the chemotherapy looking like it's active against this particular tumour? So with all of this, 
we've now got a sense of what have we achieved with the chemotherapy. Has the tumour gotten smaller? Does it look like it's been killed? And now the surgeon can plan an operation. And like I said, most of the time, surgeons are looking to perform some sort of limb salvage procedure. That is, remove the tumour from the arm or the leg and reconstruct the arm or leg with something. Piece of metal, maybe. Piece of bone from elsewhere. Some sort of limb salvage. Now, it's not always the case. There are tumours that can't be operated on at all because they're in some critical bone and you just cannot remove it. That's bad. That makes for a serious situation. Because like I said, radiotherapy isn't that good for killing an osteosarcoma in its totality. There are also certain tumours in the arms and legs that for technical reasons aren't able to be removed with a limb salvage procedure and then an amputation is necessary. But the majority of times I suppose the surgeon's looking for a way to remove the tumour in radical fashion but be able to reconstruct the arm or leg with something. And then, you know, that normally requires a pretty long rehabilitation process, you know, getting mobilised again, working with physiotherapists or physical therapists, they call them in America, you know, to get mobilised and to get used to it all. But normally they're aiming to save the limb. Now, the tumour has been taken out. The surgeon sends it to the pathologist. The pathologist analyse it in great detail and that might take them all week. Um, What they want to do is cut the tumour up into multiple bits and look to see how well was the tumour killed. Remember I talked before about the HUVOS grading. They want to see how much of the tumour looks to have been killed and how much of it looks to have survived the chemotherapy. And based on that, it has some effect on the chances to cure the patient. The other thing that we need to know is whether the surgeon has removed the tumour with clear margins. That is, when the pathologist looks at the very outside edges of the sample that they are sent, what we want to see is a situation where there's no tumour at the edges of the sample. Because if there's tumour cells at the edges of the sample, then we have to think that there would be tumour cells that have been left in the operative bed, tumour cells that have been left behind where the surgeon's been operating. So we want to see clear margins, and this is something pathologists work on meticulously to tell us whether the surgeon seems to have been able to remove the tumour in radical fashion with clear margins, and that's very important too. So then the patient has to recover from this operation, and how long they take to recover will depend on how big an operation it was and whether there are any post-operative complications. But in a perfect world, we're hoping to get on with the next lot of chemotherapy within, you know, a week or two, hopefully. And normally that would be to go back to the same chemotherapy that we were giving before, the same three drugs, cisplatin, doxorubicin, high-dose methotrexate, and then after a while we drop the cisplatinum because to give any more would be risking the hearing too much and typically the whole thing goes for about another 17 weeks. So like I said, 29 or 30 week program would be the standard in that Euromos protocol but there are other protocols and there are other people giving other drugs. There are people who might give iphosphamide and atoposide, there are people who might give carboplatin, 
there are other drugs related to doxorubicin. And all the way, the patient's being monitored for their heart function, their kidney function, their hearing, etc., to make sure we're not doing too much damage. Now, we usually can detect that some of those tests are changing, that the hearing test is is showing some changes, and, and in particular with cisplatinum, what you see is some reduction in ability to hear those really, really high frequencies. So high-frequency hearing loss may start to emerge. And I'm talking about those high, high notes, way off beyond the end of the piano that you barely think you're hearing, but they're sort of important to what, what, how you hear, you know, distinguishing a P from a B, and, you know, that very high frequencies are, are important to our speech. But it's really when you get down into the lower frequencies, if we start to see dramatic changes there, well, then we might start to wonder whether to cut the dose of cisplatinum or to stop giving it all together. It all depends. It's a complex analysis because we're trying to cure cancer after all, but at the same time we're trying to do as little damage as possible. Now, there are short-term side effects during this protocol of therapy as well. There's this ongoing problem of nausea and vomiting that some people have that's quite bad. Some people are getting mouth ulcers. Everyone's getting low blood counts and some of them are needing blood transfusions, platelet transfusions, and some are ending up in hospital with fevers because the white blood cell count's too low. It's easy to end up in hospital receiving lots of antibiotics to treat infections, particularly at a time when the blood counts are low. So it's a pretty major undertaking. It's a pretty all-consuming process. It's manageable. People get through it. People cope somehow, but it's very hard work. Now, the thing I haven't mentioned is, well, what do you do about any metastatic disease? Remember I spoke about tumour that might have spread to elsewhere in the body that we can see in the lungs on the CT scan of the chest or that might have spread to bones away from the primary site? Well, I should say that metastatic disease makes for a more serious situation. It reduces the chances that we're going to cure osteosarcoma. It may lead to a change in the drugs you use, but in some units the same standard drugs would be used. But it might require surgery, for instance, to remove those nodules from the lungs if they can be. It may be that tumour has spread to other bones, something you might pick up on the PET scan or the bone scan, and it might be that you can give radiotherapy to those isolated spots of bone in an effort to try to kill the metastatic deposit of tumour. So metastatic disease and the role of surgery, etc., is a very individualised process and needs a lot of analysis and consideration to work out what to do. What are the chances to cure osteosarcoma? Well, it all depends on whether the tumour is localised or metastatic. That's the most important consideration. And it further depends on the surgeon's ability to remove the tumour. So if we just talk about the patient whose tumour can be removed surgically and the tumour has not been seen to have spread to the lungs or to the bones or elsewhere, so it's just localised to the primary site, so localised operable osteosarcoma, well, in those patients we can be optimistic that the patient will be cured. The majority of those patients are cured with chemotherapy and surgery. Now, it's a rough time. It's a lot of work. It's hard going. 
but most of those patients can be cured. Now, it's not like 95% or something. It's not as good as that, but many more patients are cured than are not cured. Now, the patients with metastatic disease or the patient where the tumour can't be removed surgically, that's a more serious situation. And they're patients where we really need new treatments and oftentimes we have a clinical trial going that's looking at adding some new treatment to the standard therapy to try to improve our chances to cure the disease. There are patients that are cured in these situations, but it's, it's a harder job and the chances to cure such patients are not as good. After treatment finishes, well, then we need to do another set of scans usually. We normally do our PET scan again and we might do an MRI scan again, but we might not be able to if there's a big chunk of metal there. The surgeon will normally have advice about what sort of scans they want to be done of the leg or the arm where the operation occurred. And you might do PET scans or you might do CT scans of the lungs or just chest x-rays at the end of treatment and then in the years thereafter. So for instance you might do these surveillance scans every few months for the first couple of years just to check that there's no sign that the cancer has grown back somewhere in the body. There are all sorts of schedules for surveillance scans to be performed after surgery and chemotherapy is finished. So that's about all I've got to say today about the treatment of osteosarcoma. Again, the treatment is to give chemotherapy drugs, then proceed to surgery if the tumour is operable and hope that it's some sort of limb salvage operation that can be performed and then usually to give more chemotherapy. It's a rough time, it's a lot of work, people get through it, but, you know, it's a bad six months, nine months. The majority of patients with localised tumours can be cured, provided the surgeon can remove them. And it's in the patients with metastatic disease where our chances to cure the disease are not as good. There are patients who are cured, but our chances are not as good, and we urgently need new therapies to be developed. So I'll stop there. Now I should mention that I also have a Facebook page. If you go to Facebook and search for Understanding Childhood Cancer with Dr. Jeff, well that's my Facebook page. There's not much there other than to tell you that these podcasts are out there, but if you want to leave comments or requests for special information on podcasts, you can. Now don't ask me to comment on a specific patient. Uh, I dare not do that. I'll just get sued. <laughs> but more importantly, it's it's a complex situation to be commenting on individual patients. It's the role of the patients treating doctors and if patients want to get further opinions from other doctors, it needs to be done in a very organised and coordinated way with very expert referral of the relevant information, etc. So I'm not getting involved in all of that, but if people have requests for particular subjects to be discussed in podcasts, well, by all means, let me know. But please don't give me one that requires me to review the literature for six months so that I can get myself up to speed. So thanks for listening. Again, this is Understanding Childhood Cancer with Dr. Jeff, and I'm Dr. Jeff, and I'll see you next time. Thanks.